We are making our way through Luke's gospel, and Lord willing, by the end of this morning, we'll finish chapter 6. As you're turning there, let me tell you some history. In August of the year 1173, construction began on a bell tower in the city of Pisa in Italy. The city of Pisa was at the beginning a simple but important Italian seaport. With its growth, so, its, so did its religious buildings follow. Its fame and power grew gradually over the years as the people of Pisa were involved in various military conflicts and trade agreements. The Pisans attacked the city of Palmero on the island of Sicily in 1063. The attack was successful and the conquerors returned to Pisa with a great deal of treasure. And to show the world how strong and important the city was, the people of Pisa decided to build a great cathedral complex, the Field of Miracles. The plan included a cathedral, a baptistry, a cemetery, and a bell tower, which would be known as the Tower of Pisa. Construction began in 1173, and thanks to the soft ground, it had begun to lean by the time the builders got to the third story in 1178. Shifting soil had destabilized the tower's foundations. Over the next 800 years, it became clear that a 180-foot tower wasn't just leaning, but it was actually falling at a rate of one to two millimeters per year. Today, the leaning tower of Pisa is more than 16 feet off perpendicular. Its architect and engineer tried to correct this by making the remaining story shorter on the uphill side, but to no avail. It kept leaning more and more. The lean, first noted when three of the tower's eight stories had been built, resulted from the foundation stones being laid on soft ground consisting of clay, fine sand, and shells. The next stories were built slightly taller on the short side of the tower in an attempt to compensate for the lean. However, the weight of the extra floors caused the edifice to sink further and lean more. They couldn't fix it. No matter how much they tried, the tower sat unfinished for nearly 100 years, but it wasn't done moving. Soil under the foundation continued to subside unevenly, and by the time work resumed in 1272, the tower tilted to the south, the direction it still leans today. Engineers tried to make another adjustment, this time in the fifth story, only to have the work interrupted once again in 1278 with Jeff just seven stories completed. Unfortunately, the building continued to settle, sometimes at an alarming rate. The rate of incline was sharpest during the early part of the 14th century, although this didn't dissuade town officials or the tower designers from moving forward with the construction. Finally, between 1360 and 1370, workers finished the 60-meter or eight-story high project, once again trying to correct the lean by angling the eighth story with its bell chamber going northward. There were many attempts to correct the leaning, but none of them would suffice. It would be known as the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Slowly over the years, the structure reached an incline of 5.5 degrees, Then in 1989, a similar constructed bell tower in northern Italy collapsed suddenly. Officials became so worried of the Tower of Pisa that it would suffer the same fate that they closed the monument to the public. Many teams came in to try to straighten the structure, and they succeeded enough to reopen the monument in 2008. 
And in spite of these potential problems, engineers expected the famous structure will remain stable for at least 100 to 200 years. But the Leaning Tower of Pisa will eventually fall down and it will be destructive to those around it. It's not a matter of if, but when. I find it humorous that the name for the city of Pisa comes from the Greek word meaning marshy land. So they knew it before they built it. Officials say that there are other structures in the city which are also sinking as well, from the cathedral to the baptistry. All these structures were built on soft land, unable to handle the weight. So how does this lead into Luke chapter 6? When you build on solid ground, you are sure for a lasting structure. When you build on soft ground, it will eventually fall. For the last 45 verses, Jesus has been forming an argument with his disciples that are following him. They've been amazed at his teaching as he teaches as one who has authority. And they're intrigued by what he's saying and what he's doing. And in this sermon, Jesus is laying out what's expected for his disciples. And he continues to give word picture after word picture and paints a scene for the Christian life. And he gives commands that there be lived out for those that follow him. Or to think differently about wealth and hunger and weeping, knowing that we are blessed when we suffer for Jesus Christ. We're to love those that we consider our enemies and to give and not expect anything in return. We're not to be judgmental, but our posture is to be that of forgiving towards others. A judgmental heart owns a hundred microscopes, but doesn't own a mirror. But Christ's disciples look at themselves first before looking at others. And all these preceding verses, Jesus is giving building materials for his disciples. They're to live in humility, diagnosing their own log in their own eye before removing the speck in someone else's. They're to evaluate the fruit of their own life. If they are an apple tree, then they should expect apples, because a good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And then in the text here this morning, he brings it all together. This is the capstone of the sermon, stating that our lives are truly buildings, either built on shifting sand or the solid rock. So here's my main idea. Here's what I want to argue from the text here this morning. Our lives are built with different materials and are either laid on rock or earth. One way will last, the other will not. So who are you building your life on and what materials are you using to build? The issue isn't whether you're building a house or not. We all are. We all are building our lives on something. The question is how we are at how you are building your house and what you're building your house on. So let's dive in here. First point is the master builder. And this is not a reference to Lego movie. I knew some of you would get that. Verses 46 and 47. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. The, the repetition of the address, Lord, Lord, is a Hebrew method of communicating intimacy. So when people call him Lord, Lord, it's a, it's a presence of intimacy, of closeness. And the title Lord here refers to someone who has authority over another. It's, it's someone who's master. So Jesus is saying, why do you call me your intimate master? And then don't follow my instructions for living. 
Jesus doesn't want people to just listen to him, but to obey what he says. And it says in verse 47, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. It's interesting in the New Testament, the verb to obey comes from the same Greek root as the word to hear. So a kuen is the word for uh, to hear. And to put the prefix in, it, in front of it, hyper akuin, we get the word to obey. And so literally Jesus is saying to obey means hyper hearing. It means really hearing, listening. It's the same discussion that we have in our house, right? Are you hearing me or are you listening to me? You know the difference. We sometimes hear others, but we're not listening. When we listen, we're, we're engaging in what's being said. And then it brings a response. And there's a progression here. They come to be around Jesus, to see him, to be near him. And we do this each week when we gather for worship. But, but next comes the verb to hear, which the people did. They didn't just gather around him to see him, but to listen to his teaching. And we do this each week too. But you also do it when you read your Bible on your own. When we read the word or listen to the word preached, we are hearing the words of God. We hear Jesus speaking to us in the scriptures. But coming and hearing are not enough. Jesus says we must respond. We, we, we do that. We, we obey what his word says. It's hypocritical to call yourself a Christian and do not do what Jesus says. You cannot love Jesus and ignore him, what he's telling you to do. And hypocrisy will characterize the habits of those who live in hell. Here's what Jesus says in John's gospel. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John 14, 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Obeying Christ's teaching is essential requirement for Christian discipleship. Our obedience doesn't earn God's love or forgiveness. No one will obey their, their way to heaven. God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by an obedience that comes through faith. If your faith is real, then your obedience will be real. It will be evident to yourself and it will be evident to others. So if you call him Lord and do not do what he says, that means the title Lord means nothing to you. I read an illustration this week from a preacher that illustrated this point very well. So I'm going to have, you have a task here, okay? You got a pencil, paper, or your smartphone. You guys ready? Make sure you're awake, okay? I'm going to do it right now. If you have a piece of paper or your smartphone, I want you to write on there two words, Okay? and write it next to each other. No and Lord. Some of you aren't writing. I, I can see, you know, by the way. No and Lord. Yeah, I'm checking here. That's right. N-O, no, and Lord. L-O-R-D. Now listen. These two words can never be next to each other. 
They can never stand side by side. You either have to cross one of them off. The preacher says, if there are any area of your life where you say no to Jesus, then you must cross out the word Lord. But if you call him Lord of your life, then you must forever cross out the word no. They can't stand side by side. The only way to serve Jesus as Lord and to submit to his word is to be ready to do what he says. And I'm serious. When you come across commands that are given to you by our Lord Jesus Christ, we need to pause and we need to pray that God would help us to obey what he says. We cannot call him Lord if our answer to his commands are no. It is possible. It is very possible to be a fake disciple of Jesus Christ. It's possible to call him master with your mouth without ever really meaning it in your life. You can try to grow apples out of a thorn bush of your heart, but it will never work. Your heart will always be betrayed through your words and your actions. And so when the flood hits your life, either in the trials of life or ultimately in the final judgment of the Lord, the truth about your spiritual condition will be made clear for all. People will know if Jesus is Lord and Master or if you're Lord and Master. But Christian, take heart. Because in this passage here, in 46 through 49, there's three verbs. Comes, hears, and building. And they're all present tense verbs, suggesting that this is an ongoing discipleship for us. We haven't arrived. We aren't done growing. So the issue isn't whether a house is built, we are building. The issue is how it's built and where it's built. How are you building your life, and what are you building your life on? Are we submitting to the master? So we move from here to two descriptions that Jesus gives, the wise builder and the foolish builder. First, the wise builder. I came across another interesting story this week in my preparation of Thomas Hill, an Englishman who started building a house in 1770 near the Nid Valley in England. He was a humble weaver who left his little cottage and climbed the cliff above the manor of his lord, Sir Charles Slingsby, and armed with only a pick and a chisel and a hammer and desire to build a solid home for his family, Hill began his relentless assault on a sheer wall of limestone. It took him 16 years to hollow out a cleft in the rock. 16 years climbing up that hill. He chipped away at the cliff, used rocks and rubble to build the outer wall until finally he completed a magnificent fortress with some spectacular views surrounding the countryside. It was time-consuming. It was hard work. And it was a great cost. But it would last. In fact, it still stands today. And you can visit if you ever decide to get on a plane and go to England. And so Jesus says in verse 48... If we obey his words, we are like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the floods arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. See, Thomas Hill's home in England was built into the rock. 
So his house was all but impenetrable. It was able to withstand any storm. But this came at a great cost. It took years, 16 years of blood, sweat, tears to finish it. But this is what it takes to build a house in the rock. See, a cottage on the soil of the earth can be completed in a matter of weeks, months. But a rock-solid fortress takes years of patience and perseverance. Building on a strong foundation costs more. When we begin to follow Jesus, it isn't easy. It's not supposed to be. It takes courage to put sinful desires to death. It takes sacrifice to serve others instead of serving ourselves. Disciplining ourselves to follow God costs us something. Building on a strong foundation is hard work. Jesus says the wise builder is one who dug deep. And Jesus is placing the emphasis on the effort to which the man went to prepare his foundation. It takes discipline to work at understanding the scriptures. And too many Christians are content to be spoon-fed the Bible instead of diving into the word and doing the hard work of understanding. And for those in our midst that have been a part of the Simeon Trust class on Thursdays, you understand what this means. It takes blood, sweat, sometimes tears to understand what the Bible is saying. And I love you, friends. And so I say this, if the only time you open your Bible is on Sunday mornings from 10.30 to 11.30, then you're not doing the work that Jesus says need to be done by a disciple of his. Jesus quoting the Old Testament says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And listen, friends, when we gather as Christians on Sunday mornings, there's other work to be done. We don't merely gather to have personal devotions together. The church service is not just your quiet time. Uh, We do not gather to pray, sing, and read scripture like we do other days of the week at home, except that on Sundays we do it with more people around because it's encouraging. No, we come and in to participate in the life of a church. And when we come, we come not as an individual consumer to do our spiritual shopping for the week, seeing what's, what's of use down the aisle of singing or looking at what's helpful down the aisle of prayer or looking over the sermon special or browsing over the post-service conversations and then taking it home in our carts for personal use. Now, we actually assemble as a living institution a viable organism, one body. And it takes work to love one another. It takes dedication to love others that are different than you. And so when we gather as a church, it is work. It should be work. Building on a strong foundation is also time-consuming. It takes time to grow in new areas of obedience in our life. It takes perseverance in prayer. It's it's all too easy to be content with a superficial and nominal profession of faith without taking time to seek to obey Christ in all of our lives. And usually, to find the rock, you have to dig deep past the soil, and so it takes time. And if I go back to the encouragement about church family and what a church is, being a member of a local church takes time. You have to give time to that. You have to work at loving one another. Why? 
Because sometimes we're pretty unlovable. Sometimes church members are just plain mean. Sometimes church members are vicious. And we say and do things that are just hard. And it doesn't mean we pull back. That means when we experience that, we need to spend more time praying for them. We need to spend more time trying to love them in tangible ways. So growing as a Christian takes time. It also takes time to allow others to grow. Speaking for myself, I sometimes feel like others need to grow at the same pace that I'm growing. And if you're not growing at the same pace I'm growing, I assume you're not growing at all. And that's unloving. So we need to recognize that building a strong foundation is time-consuming on ourselves and on others. And we need to give grace to one another. Building on a strong foundation will also last. This is a promise that Jesus makes to those that follow him. It says, And the flood arose, the stream broke against that house, and could not shake it, because it had been well built. Floods and rain will come to the Christian. Perhaps they're even coming for you right now. But Jesus promises that when we do come and we've built our lives on Christ, the solid rock, we won't be shaken. We read later of Peter, who, who learned of Christ, his solid rock, in his epistle in 1 Peter 2. He's encouraging the readers to, to continue to lean into obedience, putting away hypocrisy of saying one thing and living another way. He says this, listen, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, and as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. When Jesus talks about the foundation that we're to build our lives on here in Luke's gospel, he's talking about himself. So I want you to notice he's making a very strong claim to his deity right here. He is the living stone that will be rejected by men. But now, as he's, Peter says, we're two like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. But then Peter quotes Isaiah 28, 16. He says, For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Again, Isaiah pointing to Jesus Christ, the rock. We will not be put to shame when we build our lives on the rock. Spurgeon Speaking of this, says Christians will be tested by the flesh. Natural desires will break into uh, lust and shame and will seek to throw us down. Will believers then perish? No. There will be losses and crosses and business trials and domestic bereavements. What then? We will not be put to shame. Our Lord will sustain us in every trial. At last, death will come. People will wipe the wipe the cold sweat from our brows. We will gasp for very breath but we will not be put to shame. We may not be able to shout victory, and we may be too weak to sing triumphant hymns, but with our last breath, we will whisper the precious name of our living stone, Jesus Christ. He is our rock. 
He is our foundation. No matter what may come, our hope is in him. Listen, friends, like the house that is founded on a rock, it will most definitely entail lots of pain and work and self-denial. For us to lay aside pride and self-righteousness and to crucify our flesh and to put on the mind of Christ and to take up our cross every day and to count all the things lost for Jesus Christ, all of this is hard work. But the Christian is the wise builder who combines their good profession with their good practice. And that building will not fall when the storms of life come. Third and last is the foolish builder. Look at verse 49. Jesus says, But the one who hears and does does not do them is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. I find it interesting that probably both houses that Jesus described here probably looked identical. Jesus, though, is point, he's pointing, though, to something that's underneath each house. What were they built on? What were they built with? Jesus is describing the difference between heaven and hell in these verses. Jesus is giving us a choice for our life. Friends, it is not humble to be hesitant where God is plain and clear in the Bible. We should never look in Scripture for loopholes to dodge what you already know God has commanded you to do. And do not ever twist Scripture to justify your sin. These are the spiritual tactics of Satan. To hear what Jesus says, but then not to do it, means that we have built our lives with our own materials and on a foundation that won't last. It's on soil, it's on dirt, it's on sand. The building on dirt cost us very little. When you begin to build, you could do it with not much investment. You don't have to change very much. You can continue to live the way you want. You continue to think of yourself more than anyone else. Building on dirt is easier. You don't have to put much effort into it. Just, just let it come to you. The builder who, who is deceived by an appearance of solid ground takes no precautions. They just float along. They move from one thing to the next in their religious pursuits. But Jesus is warning against that type of passive listening. Building on dirt is quicker. It just makes sense, right? You're building on a, on, a, on a rock. It takes time. You have to dig deep. You have to make sure it's level and right. But, but when you're content to build anywhere, you can do it quickly. And building on dirt won't last. The builder who is deceived by an appearance of solid ground believes at the outset that the things will last. But they'll be sorely disappointed in the end. J.C. Ryle, I really appreciate J.C. Ryle. He says this, A man's religion may look well for a season. The outward appearance of the house built on the rock and the house without any solid foundation may be much of the same. But the day of trial and affliction is the test which the religion of the mere outward professor cannot stand. The Christianity which consists of merely hearing religion taught without doing anything is a building which must finally fall. And great indeed will be the ruin. There is no loss like the loss of a soul. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The loss of a soul. 
Jesus says they, they will be destroyed. When he says the stream broke against it, the picture here is a river overflowing its banks and causing the flooding and, and chaos. And to understand this, we must remember that the climate in the hot countries is, in, in this time frame was very different than our own. When rains fall in hot uh, countries, they often fall very violently and cause rivers and streams to swell into a flood very rapidly. They would come quickly and they would have no time to prepare. It would come and it would overtake them. Stormy trouble will come. Persecution, perhaps, or one of life's many bitter disappointments. And then their world will collapse, including any pretense of really trusting in God. If that does not happen in this life, it will happen at death. And it will certainly happen at the final judgment. And Jesus calls this tragedy a great ruin, a lost soul. So think with me, friends, just for a moment. We are surrounded by thousands of buildings. On every side of us are thousands and thousands of buildings striving to stay upright for eternity on a mere outward profession of Christianity. Striving to shelter their souls under false refuge that they've designed all on their own. Contenting themselves with a name to live when they are dead inside with a form of godliness but without any power. I'm not sure about your spiritual status here this morning, friends. I don't know your heart. I don't know if you're trusting in Christ or trusting yourself. I can only know myself. But I wonder if these words here in Luke's gospel from Jesus are penetrating your heart. When Peter mentions the phrase that I read earlier, a living stone rejected by men, this is what happens when you build your life on anything other than Jesus Christ. It isn't a passive response to Jesus. You are outwardly rejecting him. If you are a Christian in name only, meaning you call yourself a Christian, but you just want to live the way that you want to live, you don't want to listen to the preacher on Sunday, you don't want to feel guilty when you read or hear the Bible. If this is you, friend, I fear that you are not a Christian and you've deceived yourself into believing that you are. Those who build their lives in the foundation of the gospel have nothing to fear from the storm of judgment. Jesus promises, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It has not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. We aren't perfect, far from it, but we are striving to know Christ more and live out what he tells us to do in his word. And I wonder, I wondered this week, why people would build a house without a foundation. 
Perhaps they want to save time and avoid the hard work of preparing a stone foundation. Possibly because of the waterfront scenery is more attractive or because beach houses have a higher social status than cliff houses. Perhaps because they want to join their friends who have already settled into the sandy soil. Jesus says, few build their lives on the rock. Many build their lives on the soil. And the disappointments and failures, which are the result of their life's work, will crush them. Like the story that I shared at the beginning of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, their life will fall over one day because it wasn't built on the solid rock. For some reason, people who build their lives on weak foundations assume that disaster can't happen to them. And when God judges each person's life, only those who built on Jesus and his teaching will stand the test. And there is judgment coming. One I fear that some here are not prepared for. And we want you to be prepared. So I preach the gospel. So friend, if this is you, turn from your sin of trusting yourself and turn to Jesus Christ. Trust in him completely and begin building your life on the rock that will never shake. And kids here, you need to ask yourself, am I building my life on the rock of Jesus or myself? Your parents are there to help you, but they can't make you trust in Jesus. I know I call on you regularly. I'm not going to apologize for that. I love you, and I want you to grow up in a church and understand when you get old that you heard the gospel every week. As much as I can, you will hear it from this pulpit. God is holy, and we are not. We've all sinned, and we are far away from God. But because of Jesus Christ, we can be brought near to him and have a relationship with him that we truly need. And so trust in God for salvation. Trust in him. Believe that Jesus died to take your sins. And if you're a Christian here this morning, rejoice with me. See, God is good, and he is worthy of our praise. And we studied a few weeks ago in our Simeon Trust class, 1 Samuel, and we looked at Hannah's prayer. And in that, she exalted in the Lord after the birth of Samuel. And she says, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And then later, King David says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. Looking forward to the promised one. They were looking forward to the one that would come to rescue them. The rock. And then Proverbs 10, 25 says, when the tempest passes, the wicked is no more, but the righteous is established forever.
the real foundation of our life is usually hidden and it's only proven in the storm. So friends, what is the foundation in which you're building your life? This is the question that trumps every question that you have faced this week. This is the question for your soul. Are you living on the bedrock of Christ or on the shifting soil of this earth? You may love the gospel, may love the doctrines of the scriptures. You may agree with the doctrinal teaching of this church and other ministries and your shelves might be full of the greatest theologians of all time. But where are you building your life? What is the daily practice of your life private and your life public? Can it be said of you that you not only agree and hear the sayings of Jesus, but also you do them? The hour is coming, and it'll be here soon. And so these questions must be answered now. It cannot be put off. Time is short. It's shorter now than when you woke up this morning. Moment by moment, we're inching closer and closer to seeing Jesus. And this sermon of Jesus, all of chapter 6, is not simply addressed to our ears, but to our hearts. And so to that end, when we meet Christ, we will say, Lord, Lord. Will he say, I know you, I know you by name, and come and enjoy my kingdom for all eternity. See, Jesus is closing the sermon with a choice to his listeners. Which builder will you be? What are you building your life on? Jesus warned that the foundations of our lives will be shaken at some time or another, but, but now, in seasons of difficulty and in the ultimate judgment before God, it is better that we test the foundation of our life now rather than later at our judgment before God when it's too late to change our destiny. Time and the storms of life will prove the strength of one's foundation even when it's hidden. And we may be surprised when we see who has truly built upon the good foundation. Let me end with this. There are three things that will amaze you when you reach heaven, my Christian friends. First, who's there? Second, who isn't there? And third, that you're there. That will be a great amazement. So all glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Him. His rule and reign will forever sing. All glory be to Christ. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. It cuts us deep and causes us to look at our hearts and our lives. We all are building our lives somewhere. We all are using materials, but not all of us are using your word. And we confess that we're inept builders, foolishly trying to do it on our own. Father, would you step in and correct us this morning? 
Would you direct our minds and our hearts to trust in you and not ourselves? We know that if we say we love you, that we will do what you say. But we are frail people, easily distracted and quickly discouraged in this life. And so we ask, God, that you would help us. You would help us to obey. God, would you surround us with people who are striving to obey you, who love you with all their lives? May we welcome them into our life. May we grow together as we follow you. We do love you, God, and we want to obey you with our lives. And so we ask that you would make your word strong in our hearts as we strive to obey you. We love you. May you be honored in us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.